All right, thank you, thank you. I got to apologize. I walked out of the house and realized I'm wearing gray and black, which might be the most unpatriotic colors to possibly wear. We have service on Sunday night, so I'm not used to the Sunday mornings, I promise. I am patriotic, um, it's not in the mornings, okay, uh, when I'm picking out my outfit, uh, so work with me on that. But no, uh, you know, Matt was saying, I, I grew up here, and actually it's, it's hard for me to, uh, to imagine my life and the life of my family apart from God's work through this church. I mean, think about it. I, I grew up at this church. I grew up going to Bethany Christian School before they were the Bobcats, okay? There was just no name on the jersey back then. And my wife, Lane, works at Bethany Christian School now, and I am employed at a ministry, City Church, of Rio Vista Community Church. So I don't know what I would do without you guys. Uh, So thanks. Uh, uh, It is uh, the 4th of July, and what I wanted to do is to unpack not just freedom, I think we understand what freedom is, but what are the implications of freedom? And what I wanted to do is look at the most free person to ever walk the face of the earth, Jesus. I mean, think about it. He had uh, equal status with God. And I want to ask this question, equal status with the Father, and I want to ask this question, what, what did he do with his freedom? Because there are really two things you can do with it. You can Uh, Use your freedom to serve yourself, or you can use your freedom to serve other people. And that's that's what Jesus did with his freedom. Uh, His reputation in the world, I don't know if you guys have have, have caught this, but it's kind of counterintuitive. He's the perfect son of God, right? We're worshiping him here uh, today for those things. Uh, But I wanted to look at Luke 7, 34, and look at Jesus' reputation here. We're going to put it up here on the screen. This is the reputation of Jesus. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And here's what I want to do today. I want us to unpack that, and that's what Luke does the rest of chapter 7, is he unpacks that reputation he unpacks that phrase, friend of sinners. And what he does is he uh, recounts this story that happened in the life of Jesus, where Jesus enters into an exclusive community that had their own ideas about who's in and who's out, and he shatters their worldview. He shatters it. Uh, in the story we're going to be working through here, besides Jesus, there are two main characters in the story that Luke uh, uh, accounts for us. There is a notoriously sinful woman, and there is uh, a Pharisee, a religious man named Simon. And today, some of you might resonate more with the sinful woman. And let me just say this on the onset. If that's the case, there is good news for you. Very good news for you. If you, however, resonate kind of like I do, I mean, you heard my story of growing up, with with the religious character, Simon, uh, then this story and what Jesus has to say to us is kind of challenging news. 
And so let me pray for us, and then we'll, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time here together, and we pray that you would now send your spirit to uh, do what we can't do, which is make our hearts and our minds receptive. We ask that you would leave us from this place changed people with changed hearts. Do that, and more we pray. Amen. Uh, The story starts in verse 36 with a Pharisee who is throwing a party, and he invites Jesus to the party. But here's the thing. Someone, someone has crashed the party, okay? And we pick up in verse 37 when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, This sinful woman crashes the party, which was really, really hard to do. And here's why. Pharisees were kind of like the moral uh, hall monitors, okay? Uh, they, uh, They had very, very strict rules about who's in and about who is out. And so what they would necessarily do because of all their rules, they would distance themselves from sinners. So all that to say, it's not easy it's not easy to crash the party of a Pharisee. I mean, we remember months ago, we were all in awe and shock that this, uh, this couple was able to crash the presidential state White House dinner, right? Just two people just walk in, pass the bouncers. Yeah, I'm in. I'm with, I'm with these guys. They're taking pictures with Obama, you know, they're taking pictures with Biden, you know, and, and next day we're all like, how do these people get there? That's kind of what's happening here. How, how is this woman here? And so we have some questions to ask about this woman. Uh, who is she? How did she get there? And what in the world is she doing here? Uh, so let's, let's start asking those questions. First, who is this woman? Well, first thing we notice is everything about her is wrong. Everything about her is wrong. She doesn't belong. Uh, The text reads, she's a sinner of the city. That is, she had a reputation in that city as a sinner. And what all the historical commentators will agree on is that this characterization denotes her as a prostitute. And here she is at this party. Now the question is, how in the world did this prostitute get into this strict, morally, religiously filled party? And we have a clue in our text. And here it is. Here's our clue. She's known as a sinner. Now, how is that for us a clue as to why she's there? Well, remember verse 34? What is Jesus' reputation? He is, uh, his reputation is a friend of sinners. So how in the world did this woman get here? The answer is easy. She's a sinner, and Jesus, the friend of sinners, is at the party. She's in Jesus' party. So where Jesus is, so too you would often find sinners. And the real offensive part of this whole thing isn't just that she's there, but it's what she's actually doing there. 
And this is where you can kind of, if you understand historically what's happening here, you can kind of resonate with, with the Pharisee, perhaps. Verse 38 says that she's tending to Jesus. She's tending to Jesus, caressing Jesus' feet with her hair down. Now, in this setting, this would have been on par with going out topless in public. For real. And so it's no wonder why this Pharisee is questioning the holiness, the set-apartness, the rightness of this Jesus. It makes complete sense. And that's why he says to himself, we read it in verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, okay, if this man, this Jesus were who he says he is, if he really were a prophet, then he would have known, it says, who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So immediately what the Pharisee does, which is often a tendency for all of us, if we're honest, is you just start labeling people. That woman, sinner. This guy, non-profit, okay? And, and that's immediately what religious people exclusive people do is they see someone who doesn't seem to fit in their categories and they immediately label. And that is why uh, the next verse, verse 40, is so funny. I mean, take a look at this. Simon had just said to himself in his inner monologue, she's a sinner and this guy is a non-prophet. He said that in his inner monologue and then, and then Jesus responds to Simon's inner monologue, right? Tell me, uh, Simon, Jesus says, I have something to tell you. And this is where uh, kind of the light bulb goes off for Simon, and he goes, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Tell me, teacher. Now he's starting to realize that maybe this guy is the divine prophet, You see, Jesus has something he wants to tell Simon. And Jesus has something he wants to tell us. And like I said, it is great news. What he's about to say is great news for the sinner. If you feel like you came into these doors and you are unworthy of God's grace and you feel as if you're a big sinner, God could never ever accept you, that the Christ, uh, Christianity itself has no place for you, there's some good news coming. But like I said, it is very, very challenging news for the religious, and it has everything to do with this question. Who is at your party? Who is in your crew? This is a very uh, qualifiable question. I mean, we can... Uh, we, can, we, can, we can figure this out, right? Just think, who do you hang out with? Uh, who do you associate with? Who is in your crew? And of course, if, we're, you know, if we really are a church and we're at a church and maybe you're super religious, you might say, well, in my party, of course, it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is there. Every time we sit down with people, I invite him to come in. Hey, I pray over the meal. Jesus is always at my party, well, this is saying, um, 
it's not really enough. That's what's so challenging. If the only people you surround yourself with, I surround myself with, if the only people we surround ourselves with are people that look like us, that act like us, that believe the same things that we believe, uh, then what this is saying is that even though we might invite Jesus to be with us, like this Pharisee we're going to see, we completely miss the heart of Jesus. Because remember verse 34? Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners, which has some implications for all of us. Think about it. If we're not a friend of sinners, we really can't be a friend of Jesus. You see, let me just speak to those that would consider themselves religious, that resonate like I do uh, with Simon the Pharisee. Religious people like us often, often uh, like to think uh, that we are the lifeline to God for the sinner. Uh, if only the sinner, uh, if only the sinner uh, can get near to us, then they can get near to Jesus. The sinner needs us to point them to Jesus, to get near to Jesus. And you know what? Yeah. Sure. But you know what this is saying? This is saying we need the sinner to get us near to Jesus. Because the person we want to get near to is a friend of sinners. Listen, this is bad news for Simon the Pharisee. And perhaps you hear that and you go, whoa, this is bad news for me. I, you know, if I go through a list of my Facebook friends, you know, they're all religious. They're all just like me. If I, you know, go down my, my phone and I look at the names on there, they're all religious too. And so perhaps you're going, this is bad, this is bad news. Uh, there's hope here, even for Simon, because what Jesus does is Jesus begins to change his heart. And he does it by way of a story, by telling a parable. And the parable begins in verse 41 and goes to 42. And what, what Jesus does is he tells this parable about a creditor who has now become this great benefactor and he cancels the debts of both of his clients. One client for 500 denarii and the other client for 50. And then he asks this question, who do you think will love more? And Simon actually gets the answer right. I mean, he follows the logic of the parable, of the story. It's kind of a no-brainer. And so in verse 43, we read this. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. You see, who had the bigger debt canceled? 
In life, who has the bigger debt canceled? Simon, this, this good guy, this church-going, this religious guy, or this prostitute? Which of them has a bigger debt canceled? And he says, the woman. The woman does. And here's the great insight that this parable gives us, is there are really two ways to view and have a relationship with God, to relate to God. You can perform acts of love and service in order to pay down your debt to God. Or you can perform acts of love and service because the debt has already been paid down. The sinful woman is taking the latter approach. Simon, this Pharisee, is taking the former. You see, Simon did for God. He, he showed up to church. He went through all the religious motions because he wanted to pay down the debt. He knew that in order to receive God's benefits, to be in with God, he owed God. And so what he did is he looked for something in his life to save him. And this is something we all do. Once you come to that place where you realize God is God, you are not, you begin to look for something in your life to save you, to build an identity upon. And Simon looked at his life and he said, well, I was born into a religious family. I'm a pretty good person. I seem to observe all the right things you're supposed to observe. And when people look at me in the world, they think, hey, there's a really great guy. He's a really religious, moral guy. And so what Simon began to do is he began to cling to his religious and social elitism as a way of building his identity. You see, listen, he knew he wasn't perfect, okay? He was not about to make that claim. He knew his scriptures well enough, you don't go there, okay? But he thought, God has to grade on a curve, right? He just has to. He has to grade on a curve, you know what, no one's 100%, so you know what, I'll do everything I can. And at the end, God will just forgive my debt. So for him, he's the guy that has a little debt. He's the guy with, with 50 denarii instead of 500 that he owes. You see, this kind of view and relationship to God has very, very practical implications for what kind of life you lead and what kind of community of people we are. Think about it. If you build your identity on being religious, on being moral, on being in, you, necess you necessarily exclude yourself from people who don't share that identity. Another way to put it is if, if you really believe that God does great on a curve, you necessarily want to do everything you possibly can to distance yourself from the bottom of the pack. So you exclude, and you exclude. I'm not like them. They're out, I'm in. 
But there is another worldview. There is another way to live. You see, Jesus in the parable is the great money lender. And Jesus treats all debts the same. You hear that? All debts the same, whether it's 50 or 500 or one, he treats them all the same. Meaning there is no curve in the kingdom of God. Doesn't exist. St. Paul said to the Roman church that for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's bad news, but the good news is Jesus is the great debt canceller who sets us free from our debts. And it is his death in our place on the cross that cancels debts, all of them. And what this means is that you and I can love God not in order to pay down the debt, but we can do it because the debt has already been paid. So do you know what kind of effect this should have on us if we really, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus on the cross wipes out our debts. Now you have to ask yourself this question, do I really believe that? And there's a way to tell. There's a bunch of ways to tell, the scriptures say, but one of them is by fruit, by the kind of life you lead. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of effect is this going to have on my life? And here it is. Now you build your identity, not on being moral, but on being a sinner saved by grace. And this means that you will now identify with other sinners in need of grace. Meaning every time you look at someone else who you or the rest of society might deem an outcast, a sinner, what it should do if you really believe the gospel is it should reveal your own need for Jesus every single time. And that is what Jesus does throughout this story. You see, he gives, Jesus, he gives Simon the gospel, right? This parable about, about uh, the great money lender who cancels all debts to change his heart. And then what Jesus does is he turns Simon around and says, now look at her. Now look at the woman. In light of this, in light of the gospel, now look at the woman and what do you see? Verse 44, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now look at her. He's inviting Simon. It's an invitation to enlightenment, to see the world in a completely new way. And now... When Simon looks at this woman, it's completely different. Now he doesn't see how much better he is than her. Now he sees the opposite. Now he sees how much he falls short of God. I mean, Jesus lays it on pretty thick. Verses 44 and 46. Jesus says, You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. See, Jesus begins to explain. Jesus is the, is the guest of honor at this party. But you know who actually treated him as such? Not the host, Simon, but this woman. And what's more, her worship of Jesus was lavish. It was ridiculous. I mean, Jesus goes through and he outlines what is proper on how to treat a guest of honor at a banquet. Water for his feet. That's customary. Well, look what the woman, the woman does. And he points this out. This woman, she washes them herself. Not just with any kind of water. With the water flowing from her eyes, her own tears. It was customary for a towel to be provided to the guest of honor to dry the feet. This woman goes a step further, doesn't she? She dries the feet with her own hair. It was customary uh, for the guest of honor to be anointed with oil. She anoints Jesus with her most prized possession, this costly perfume. It was customary for a guest of honor to receive a kiss on the cheek. She kisses his feet. Isn't that interesting that all of the action of this woman is directed toward the ugliest part of Jesus' body? (laughs) His dirty, filthy feet. They didn't have Birkenstocks, you know, back then. Didn't have socks. This guy's, his feet were disgusting. And all of her worship is directed there. What's the point? I mean, if you're Simon watching this, you're going, oh no. Oh boy, I blew it. I blew it. You see, Simon has never come to terms with the depths of his own heart. And because of that, he loves little. Why has he created this exclusive community? Why is he an exclusive person? Because he is a forgiven little person. That's why. He thinks he's great, but he sees this woman. He takes a second thought and realizes he's terrible. He's terrible. His sin just looks different. And his sin just looks more socially acceptable. But the truth is he was just as much in desperate need of God's grace as this woman. So let me ask you this. What do you see when you look at the woman of the city? When you look at the outcast, that person, listen, that person at work it could be, who no one else talks to, Maybe it's that, uh, that person, let's say you play softball in a softball league, and it's that person who you can't believe the kind of life they lead. You can't believe it. What do you really think when you see the center of the city? Mike Wise is a sports columnist for the Washington Post. And, you know, months ago, uh, you know, the center of the city, we would say, in our culture, was Tiger Woods, right? He's the guy who, uh, you know, who made huge mistakes, who everyone was joking about, right? 
who everyone looked at and said, this guy, <laughs> this guy blew it. I mean, he is, he's got it all wrong. I can't believe he did this. He had it all. And now it's all, and now it's all gone. Well, uh, Mike Wise is a sports columnist for the Washington Post, and you would think as a sports columnist, you would immediately write on this subject, right? But he didn't. He didn't for, for a couple months. He didn't write on it. And everyone was wondering, well, why, why isn't this sport? I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Why isn't this guy writing on the Tiger Woods story? And he recently came out with an article explaining why he didn't and his comments on the situation. And it is fascinating. He says, the reason I have yet to write about the biggest sports story of the year in these pages is because Woods's plea to one of his many mistresses brought up old, awful feelings of shame, guilt, and humiliation. I am Tiger Woods. And I understand why the scent of a woman is unbeaten in 2010 and beyond. And he keeps repeating that refrain in his article. I am Tiger Woods. And I have poked fun at his travails because I use humor as camouflage. Because if I were to deal with the truth, if the world were to know the details of my sad, pathetic, electronic communication with other women at one time in my life, the horrific embarrassment would not just send me into seclusion, it would send me off the ledge. Tiger Woods has an emotional void in his life. And having stared into this void myself, having known this hollowness, I can neither chastise the guy nor exonerate him. I am Tiger Woods. And because of that, I can only hope that he realizes he's sick and takes steps to get better. That's insightful. Every time you look at someone who you think is not fit, it should reveal your own need for Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. That's the point of this great parable. Whether you're at 50 or 500, no matter what you owe, everyone needs Jesus. Irreligious people who have run away from God need Jesus and need to confess of their sin. Because sin is a way to run away from Jesus as the only source of your hope and salvation and fulfillment. And this is good news, especially if you walked in these doors feeling that God can't accept you because you're a big sinner. The good news of the gospel is this. God saves big sinners. That's good news. It was good news for this woman, and it's good news for you. That's irreligious people. Now remember I said this news is challenging for religious people. And perhaps when you heard me say that, God saves big sinners, you thought, yes, that's right. But don't miss the point. It's not God even saves big sinners. It's God only saves big sinners. So, religious people need Jesus too. Simon needed Jesus. 
What do religious people confess of? If irreligious people uh, confess of their sin, running away from God, religious people confess of their goodness. Because they've used, we've used our goodness as a way to make ourselves acceptable to God. We've clung to our morality, to our religiosity, to whatever, as a way to feel secure, as a way to save ourselves. That is sin. Because the gospel says, Jesus is your goodness already. Do you get it? You're already free. Stop using your freedom as a way to build yourself up. I've already built you up. Use your freedom to go out in the world and reach people. The debt has already been paid, which means this. Any effort you have to pay down the debt is counterproductive. This is why the prophet Isaiah says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Sure, give give it to God, and he looks at it, and it's filthy rags. It's not productive, it's counterproductive. You see, Jesus isn't even a friend of sinners. The gospel is Jesus is only a friend of sinners. And by his grace, through repentance and faith, we can be his friends too. And you know how I know that? You know how I know that even I have hope? You know how I know that even Simon, the Pharisee, has hope? You know what Jesus calls this man? You know, the text starts out, a Pharisee did this, a Pharisee did that, Pharisee, Pharisee. Jesus calls him Simon. He calls him his name. You see, Jesus doesn't label you. Do you know that? Even if you fault this over and over and over again, Jesus doesn't write you off. Jesus doesn't label you, ah, oh, that's someone who doesn't get it. He's, he's never going to get it. She's never going to get it. Forget it. You don't get it. He doesn't do that. Jesus calls the man Simon. You know what this means? He's committed to us. The passage ends pretty interestingly. Verses 48 and 50, Jesus twice pardons this woman. Verse 38, he says, Your sins are forgiven. In front of the community present, in verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now, why is this so surprising and interesting that the passage ends this way? Well, because the whole point of the story is that she came in already pardoned. She had already had forgiveness. That's why she was worshiping God in this way. That's why she was worshiping her Savior Jesus in this way. She had already been forgiven. Her debts had already been canceled. So why in the world would Jesus twice pardon her? And here's the answer. Because he wanted the community present to hear it. He wanted the community present to see her new status. He wants them to include her in their community. 
And he wants us to do that as well. So the question we have to leave ourselves with is what kind of lives are we going to live? What kind of communities are we going to be? Remember, exclusive communities are filled with forgiven little people. They're forgiven little communities. Inclusive communities, the, one that, the ones that God calls the church to be, the ones that God calls our lives to be, inclusive communities are filled with forgiven much people. So are you forgiven much or are you forgiven Little, let's be forgiven much. And let's love God and love people freely, not because we're looking for God's favor, but because we already have it. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for Jesus. Thank you that thank you that it happened that in time, space, human history, you entered this world, the God-man, the perfect God-man Jesus, to cancel our debts, to set us free from our bondage to sin, from our bondage to wanting and desiring to build a life around ourselves, whether that's how good we are at doing what you're telling us to do, or how bad we are at it. Building our identities around running away from you, around being a rebel. God, forgive us of all of those sins. And help us see Jesus, our great debt canceler, who went to the cross in our stead and took our place, so we could be free. And even when we fail at it, forgiveness is there and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.